Hello everyone, this is Daniel, one of the hosts of the Particular Baptist Podcast. In this week's episode, we appear on the Why Theology Podcast, hosted by Khalil Jones, to discuss regenerate church membership. He graciously allowed us to post the episode on our channels. I hope it is helpful and edifying. The episode will begin after this note from our sponsor, Anchor. My name is KJ, and this is Why Theology, and I have Mr. Sean and Daniel from Particular Baptist Podcast. You guys can introduce yourselves. I'm Daniel, host of the Particular Baptist Podcast. I'm Sean, and I'm also a host of the Particular Baptist Podcast. This will be the second time we've joined Khalil for his. Definitely. It's always a joy to have you guys on. The first episode, we were tackling, I think, Chapter 2 of the Confession. And so today we got a very interesting topic. But um, what's been going on in you guys' life on Particular Baptist Podcast? How's that been going? And what's some episodes you guys recently dropped? So this is actually Sean's first time back um, in a little while. He came back for one episode and then, um, but because of seminary, uh, he had to take a break. Um, so this will be his first time back, I think, until the fall, right, Sean? Uh, first time back, you mean? Central for the fall? podcast. Or, no, because I'll, I'll be back for a while, but. Um, oh, yeah. I, yeah. For ours anyways. Yeah. 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 Um, so but, this will uh, basically be Sean's. We'll try to get back into our regular schedule. Yes. <laughs> um but yeah yeah things have been going pretty well we're uh we have some uh some new things going on with the the ministry um last episode i did was on uh philo- greek philosophy and and whether paul did paul reject all greek philosophy and i talked about that some in light of um the debate surrounding sola scriptura that's come up again um, I was responding specifically to Jeff Johnson's uh, a chapter from his, one of his newer books, um, "Saving Theology from Natural Theology from Thomas Aquinas," um, and so that was I focused on that last time. Um, and then, any you had asked too about any upcoming episodes. One that Sean and I are planning on doing is one on Romans seven, okay, uh, with the controversy surrounding that. Um, there are different views on that uh, passage. Uh, you know, is Paul talking about an unbeliever, believer, and there, there's other views out there. So we're going to tackle that um, and hopefully uh, bring the, what the biblical, what we believe the biblical position is um, out of that. That's going to be a very interesting topic. So um, on the, your last episode with Jeff Johnson, um, did Paul reject all Greek philosophy? What was the stance that you took on that? Uh, I'd say no. Um, and I, I use Acts 17. Uh, really as the basis for that. Um, I do talk about Colossians 2 some, but I focus quite a bit on Acts 17. And that's where Jeff Johnson really went to, to try and prove uh, that Paul did reject Greek philosophy. Um, But I take that, no, he didn't reject all Greek philosophy. And the point being that he he took in things that were helpful and used it to support his position, um, while obviously rejecting um, things that were contrary to uh, revealed theology um, so that's where that's where we would stand now would you guys both say that you guys hold to a presupposition method of apologetics yes okay okay how would like van till's method of apologetics kind of tie in to like rejecting all greek philosophy or the topic that you guys discussed recently um so i don't think van till would have rejected all greek philosophy i i think their uh presuppositionalism is not monolithic there's different you know, there's, there's more moderate, I, I would say, like, I take a 
a more moderate view of the position. I wouldn't say I'm like a, a full-blown presuppositionalist um, like Jeff Johnson would be. Um, I think there's issues with his view. Um, and we talk about, uh, I think we talk about that in a previous episode. Um, but uh, I don't think Van Til would have rejected all of natural theology. I think you can marry natural uh, classical apologetics and presuppositional apologetics. Um, I think there's a false dichotomy that's been created between the two. Um, and I think there is a way to be able to hold those views consistently. I don't think they're necessarily opposed to each other. Um, yeah, go ahead, Tra. Van Til um, will borrow uh, from philosophers when he, when he sees a need to do so or, or sees that it's beneficial. Kant. He does. Yeah, he does. He does borrow from Kant, and we have no issue with that. Um, yep. He takes what we think is correct from Kant. Um, we just would appreciate it if uh, that standard was held uh, consistently, <laughs> and that it was uh, okay as long as we're doing it appropriately to borrow from other philosophers from history. Definitely, definitely. Um, one of my friends who taught me the presupposition method, he says that like um, he likes to use like the evidentialist model, kind of like grounded on scripture and proving how scripture is true. And then if any moment like an atheist may reject that, then he goes to the presupposition method. Mm. So I like that because he's like like letting the scriptures prove itself to be true, and then using that as a means of like sharing the gospel. So that's pretty mm -hmm. cool. I like that method. Now today uh, we have a pretty good topic. It's kind of um, what makes us Baptist Baptists, and we're going to talk about church regenerate membership. And so when I say that, what's some immediate things that kind of comes to you guys' minds? Church, Virginia membership. <laughs> I mean, it, it makes me immediately think of being a Baptist because yeah. that is one of the Baptist distinctives right there that we believe that um, as much as is possible for us to determine, because obviously there might be some walking among us in our fellowship that aren't regenerate that we don't know about, but as, as much as possible, we are striving to have a totally regenerate um, church. Definitely, definitely. Now, um, do you guys think that, you know, particular Baptists, they've always held to this doctrine? What would you guys say? Uh, so, at least for my understanding of a uh, uh, particular Baptist history, we came out of the Congregationalists, and the Congregationalists had basically already come to this conclusion that the local church was supposed to be comprised in as much as possible of, of regenerate members only. And then our particular Baptist forefathers took the next logical step and said, well, if it's supposed to be just regenerate members, why are we baptizing our children? And that was the, the catalyst for going, uh, going there. Yeah. Um, and I, I think our confession speaks very clearly to that. Um, and, and if they didn't hold to that, it would mean that they are actually falling in line with their Presbyterian or Anglican brethren. Um, so yeah, having a regenerate church membership, I think was very important, uh, to them. Um, now how that played out in different church governments, you know, may not have been the same across the board, but I think it's safe to say that they all believed in some form of, you had to be a regenerate believer in order to be part of a local church. Definitely. And we're going to talk about kind of like defining a word of church and like how our confession does it. But before we do that, what was something like uh, maybe some known particular Baptists that you guys know that kind of held to that? I know John Bunyan's one, but what would you guys say? Um, I, I would say uh, Benjamin Keach, um, William Kiffin, Hanser Nollies, who are all signers of our confession, uh, would have held to a, a regenerate church membership. Um, 
but then there, you know, there's nuances in it. Like you mentioned, John Bunyan, John Bunyan, you know, there were issues that kind of touch upon church membership, like with communion, with mm-hmm. an open communion or a fence table, like Bunyan, I think held to a, an open communion stance while there were others who fenced the table. in. Um, so even within the broader understanding of church membership, um, there were subcategories and people I think had some of their own views on, on that. Um, but yeah, I think that the basis there, you, you do see like Keach, Kiffin and Nollies, um, just off the top of my head who did, um, hold to that view. Definitely. Definitely. Now, um, how does like our confession define church and how would you guys define church? Would you guys align more with how the confession state, you know, stands it or what would you say? So, um, it depends on uh, which, uh, which type of church you're referring to there. <laughs> Um, because obviously we believe as Reformed Baptists in the universal church and the, um, the local church. So the uh, confession defines the universal church as, uh, and this is from uh, paragraph one of, uh, and I didn't write which chapter it is. I should probably know that, but don't remember off the top of my head. 26. 26. Uh, the Catholic or universal church with which, with respect to the internal work of the spirit and the truth of grace may be called invisible consists of the whole number of the elect that have been are or shall be gathered into one under Christ, the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that filleth all and all. And uh, the definition of the local church actually spans a couple paragraphs. So I'm going to just read uh, paragraphs five through eight here. In the execution of this power, uh, where wherewith he is so entrusted the lord jesus calleth out of the world unto himself through the ministry of his word by his spirit those that are given unto him by his father that they may walk before him in all ways of obedience which he prescribeth to them in his word those thus called he commanded to walk together in particular societies or churches for their mutual edification and the due performance of that public worship which he requireth of them in the world The members of these churches are saints by calling, visibly manifesting and evidencing in uh, in and by their profession of walking, their obedience unto that call of Christ, and do willingly consent to walk together according to the appointment of Christ, giving up themselves to the Lord and to one another by the will of God in professed subjection to the ordinances of the gospel. To each of these churches thus gathered, according to his mind declared in his word, he hath given all that power and authority, which is in any way needful for their carrying on that order in worship and discipline, which he has instituted for them to observe with commands and rules for the due and right exerting and executing of that power. A particular church gathered and completely organized according to the mind of Christ consists of officers and members. And the officers appointed by Christ to be the cho- to be chosen and set apart by the church, so called and gathered, for the peculiar administration of ordinances and execution of power or duty, which he entrusts them with or calls them to, to be continued to the end of the world, are bishops or elders and deacons. Mm-hmm. So we see a, a number of things that categorize the church, that it's made up of saints that are called um, for their mutual edification and uh, public uh, worship. And that's, that's the reason why they gathered um, that it's to be organized with leadership. We see all these things that constitute a church. Definitely. And I know like um, in our confession at the end of each paragraph, they kind of list uh, several verses to kind of 
how they got to that stance. But would you guys say the definition that Sean has read in our convention teaches is a biblical definition of the church, the universal church? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, yeah and, and like Sean said, you have those, you have the visible church and the invisible church. Um, but yeah, I would say so. Hebrews, and, and these are actually proof texts pulled from, I think it's from paragraph one, uh, Hebrews 12, 23, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. So you see that there is this uh, this call or this writing to an assembly, right? It's it's an assembly of believers, which we would understand to be the church. Uh, Colossians 1.18, and he, this is referring to Christ, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent so christ is the head of this body that we call the church which hebrews says is made up of believers um so yes it's it's i think very clearly um laid out in scripture as to what the the church is it's those who are called of god who are um regenerated who are saved um and it's not to go outside the bounds of that definitely awesome awesome now, um, how would that definition, kind of like this is one of the chapters that separates, you know, our confession versus like the Westminster Confession. How does like our definition of the confession states kind of tackle with the issue of like uh, believers, infants being a part of this, this visible church? What would y'all say? Yeah, so for uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith for Presbyterians, um, the children of believers, or at least one, one believing spouse, would be considered part of the visible church. Um, they uh, they wouldn't necessarily say that they're they're part of the elect just by virtue of being born, but they are part of the uh, the um, church community. We could say, um, and that would be a distinction between us and them, because we wouldn't even say that they're they're part of the visible church until they profess faith in Christ. Yeah, and I think the issue too has to do with a an understanding of covenant theology um and and in ecclesiology is tied directly to a covenant theology the presbyterians like sean just implied they they do this you know if you're a child of a parent who's a believer and you're baptized you are considered you know at baptized as an infant you are considered part of the covenant community and we make the distinction between the visible church which can you know, we, we as faulty human beings can make mistakes in terms of who we're admitting into the church. We just do it based on the evidence that we see. Um, we even see an, a, an example of this with Simon the Magician, right? Mm-hmm. He was among the believers and he appeared to be a believer, but it doesn't seem that he really was and he was called out for his folly. Um, but when we're talking about believers, those who are part of the true church, that's the invisible church. And there's really, there doesn't seem to be a real good distinction from our Presbyterian brethren between those two, because they're conflating. They're saying, if you're baptized as a believer, you're part of the visible church, even though those who are in the invisible, invisible church are also part of the same group that the visible church uh, is in with regards to being uh, a child being baptized. So there might be some issues there, but covenant theology is going to play a role into that. And I want to read real quick. Um, this is from the Westminster Confession, chapter 25, paragraph 2. It says, The visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children, and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility 
of salvation. And this is very different from our confession, um, which makes very clear that it's just believers that are to be uh, admitted, even into the visible church, those who show evidence of faith. Um, but for our Presbyterian brethren, it's also the children of those believers. Um, yeah. And that is based in, in a covenant, a certain covenant theology. It kind of ties in. I've always wondered because uh, many of my, you know, Presbyterians, they, they would say that the infants are part of the visible church. But when it comes to, like the means of grace, such as the Lord's Supper, they won't admit it to them. Why do you guys think that is? Well, um, <laughs> First Corinthians says that uh, we need to be a discerning of the body and blood of the Lord. So there's explicit, an explicit biblical reason why you would deny an infant who can't do that yet. Um, so I think they're trying to be consistent with the Bible, but because they have an unbiblical assumption, it sort of create it puts them in a little bit of a knot there. Um, so, I mean, I, I appreciate that they're at least trying to be uh, uh, biblical on the one hand, but uh, I don't think it fits with the rest of their theology very well. <laughs> yeah, it's a little, it's a little odd. It's like, okay, if they're part of the visible covenant community, and they're part of really part of the covenant of grace, not just, you know, visibly part of the covenant of grace, but they are really part of this covenant. Um, then shouldn't they be receiving the ordinances that are under that covenant as well, not just baptism? Uh, now, there are those who do take this to it, I think, to its logical conclusion. You see Doug Wilson's church. And in fact, James White is actually about to do a debate with Doug Wilson coming up here on that topic of pedo communion. Um, but Doug Wilson believes in pedo communion, and I think he's being consistent uh, with his views on that. Um, but we do appreciate that there are brothers who don't go that far and take these things to their logical conclusion. Um, it, it, it's just a, it's a mess uh, if you go down. I mean, it's a mess as it is, but it just makes it worse if you, if you continue down that road. Um, so it, it's, I'm glad that there are brothers who don't do that. Definitely, definitely. And the reason I want us to take time to kind of like define the church, because it kind of is going to tie us into our topic, which is church, Virginia membership. So now that we've accurately defined church, how does, um, well, let's talk about um, the congregational method. So like there's different, you know, views of like how church and government should be ran. And one of the things that make us Baptists, like is the congregation aspect. Um, would you guys agree that like, you know, most Baptist churches should be ran congregational led? And then like, I guess the um, elders leading, not necessarily like ruling, you guys know, with the Catholic Church, you have a pope. He's ultimately ruling the church. But we see biblically, I know some Reformed Baptists would say, like, biblically, the pastor's leading the church. He's not ruling the church. He's leading the church. And the congregation is ultimately kind of all together. What would you guys say about that? I like the way uh, Pastor Poboon Singh uh, describes it. He's written a lot on uh, particular Baptist ecclesiology. And the way he describes it is um, the elders rule with congregational consent. Like so this. it's not... It's not this hard distinction between um, like a pure congregationalism where it's just the congregation and there's, there's no leadership exercising authority. And mm -hmm. it's not some sort of um, uh, Romanish uh, authority with um, everybody just submitting to whatever is said. It's, it's both. It's a give and take. Uh, the elders are said that um, are described as ruling. Um, Paul says that you're to honor those, especially um honor those that rule well especially those that labor in uh, preaching and teaching so elders are to rule but at the same time we have peter saying uh, you're not to lord your authority over the flock and we do see the um the uh the church congregation involved in decisions for example 
the apostles tell uh, the church in Jerusalem, choose from yourselves uh, men to become the first deacons, right? So they are involved in this, um, in this uh, process of how the church is to be run. And uh, that's the biblical example. So I would say that, yes, I think all Baptist churches and all other churches uh, should uh, follow this model of church government. Definitely. Yeah, I agree. It is. A, I think it is a biblical form of, of church government. Um, although you do see some differences even among the particular, but even among the signers, for some of the signers of our confession, uh, for instance, Hansard Nollies um, pushed for a Presbyterian independent form of church government. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you see like Nehemiah Cox and Benjamin Keach staying along the lines of like a congregational elder, like what we're talking about here. Although Keach did um, have issue with the office of ruling elder, which he thought ended in the apostolic era. Uh, with the end of the apostolic era, that that office ended, which is kind of odd. Um, and you can find uh, this book here is very helpful. Um, Edification and Beauty, the Practical Ecclesiology of the English Particular Baptist, 1675 to 1705 by James Renahan. Um, hmm. It's got some really good um, stuff in here on on some of the particular Baptist ecclesiology and history and different beliefs that were floating around with that so they even struggled with this issue too um it wasn't just you know that that it was said and done and then they they all believe the same thing not necessarily um some took different views um but at the end of the day they did believe like we said regenerate church membership Mm -hmm. they believed that to be part of uh the invisible church the true church you had to be saved and to be admitted into the visible church, you had to profess, you had to show signs of uh, being saved in order to be admitted into the church. But how that all played out in terms of governance, not necessarily uh, the same across the board. Definitely, definitely. Now, um, one more question to kind of kind of bring it all into full, so kind of, you know, the average listener will understand. How does like the congregational or the Reformed Baptist ecclesiology differ from like the Presbyterian? So, like, as we get ready to talk about church within membership, people will know, okay, this makes, this makes more sense. How, how would you guys define that? So, for congregationalism, the local church um, is self-governing. It's autonomous, mm-hmm. and there is no higher authority over it. Um, for a more Presbyterian model, you do have a hierarchy of courts that uh, exercise some level of uh, authority over the local churches. Now, uh, the Westminster Confession does explicitly say when it comes to synods and councils that um, if uh, they act unbiblically because they can err, that uh, the churches aren't to follow them. So they don't have a a popish model of of authority over the church, but they do place an authority over the local church that uh, we as Baptists would not uh, think is biblical. Yeah, it's definitely it's an Episcopalian um, hierarchy, I believe. Uh, uh, Episcopalian kind is of one yeah. ruler. Uh, for a Presbyterian synod, it's it's um it's almost like congregations or it's a uh, it's groups of elders that have been elected. So it it is more of a, and they oversee those local yeah. churches. It, you don't have the independence of a local church that you would find among Baptists. Um, yeah, those if you're admitted as my understanding is that. If you're to preach at a local Presbyterian church, you would have to be admitted by the presbytery. Essentially, you're examined. You have to be um, approved by them. You can't just your local church can't vote you in, and then that's it. There has to be a a, a longer, I think, approval process. Um, I don't even know if the congregation would be involved at that point. Um, but at the end of the day, the presbytery would, I think, would have the 
ultimate say in terms of if you can preach at a particular local church. I think that is right. That stance is right. Now, um, we define like the two different church governments and also what uh, congregation method is. How does like our topic today kind of goes, what kind of ties into the church within membership? So uh, we think about the congregation method. If we have the church together collectively voting on major decisions, how does the importance of making sure believers are inside this visible church tie into that? Who would y'all say? So we, we got these questions beforehand, so I had time to reflect <laughs> on it. And it was an interesting question because it didn't immediately strike me as these things are connected. But thinking about it, you almost never see them, them separated. If you have regenerate church membership, it's almost always with a uh, congregational um, uh, polity. Uh, so I was trying to think what is actually the connection here. And I guess what, what struck me was if you have a uh, regenerate church, you are able to be um, self-governed, right? Or you're at least trying to be. Whereas if you're not expecting that necessarily, then it, I guess it makes a little bit more sense to be concerned like, oh, well, we have to have an authority over the local church to make sure everything's going in the right direction. Um, but aside for that, I, I, I don't know. I don't know if you would uh, come up with anything there, Dan. Um, I guess if, if you're going to have um, members of a church who have this consensual um, rule, if you will, they should be believers, right? It should be tied together. If, if church membership is conditioned upon a valid profession of faith and evidence of faith, um, then they have to be believers. And I think that's really where it ties in. And you certainly don't want uh, unbelievers telling you what to do in your church. Um, if you don't have a regenerate church membership, then you could have unbelievers who are going to come in and uh, run these things from a pagan perspective. Yep. Um, so it is, it's very important that we have a, um, a regenerate church membership. That is an interesting question, though, because they, they do go together. Um, it's just, I think we don't always really consider why. We just assume that it, it's the case, right? We just go, oh, yeah, it just makes sense that if you profess to be a believer, well, you have to, uh, you have to do this in order to be uh, a voting member of a church. Um, but yeah, the, I think they go hand in hand. And I think that's what Paul assumes when he talks about uh, the congregation of believers or, or any of the apostles when they're writing to these local churches, they're assuming that they believe what it is that they are participating in. And so it would stand to reason that uh, these two things go together. Yeah, like a oh, go ahead, Sean. I was going to say, uh, if I wanted to be a little bit of a little bit snarky here, I could uh, say that uh, the reason um, both are held by uh, Baptists is, well, because we're, we're taking the Bible seriously on the one. So clearly we take the Bible seriously on the other. <laughs> there you go. I was going to kind of give a practical example. Let's say, for example, you know, you, you guys are like you know, elders of a church, right? And you guys are doing this congregation method and a the congregation, they vote on decisions together. Well, the, the city and the government has decided bringing a casino into town. And so the church, they come, you know, come along and say, okay, hey, are we going to be a fortieth casino or against this casino? How does that church agenda membership kind of play in that factor? As kind of Dan you mentioned. Um, let's see. So I guess um, how if the church was voting on how it should think about this, um, we should go to our Bibles and then um, at the the business meeting, 
we should bring up any concerns that we might have regards to it in regards to it and um as a church come to a decision about how we should um uh think about it um in a case like that where there might be a little bit of liberty of conscience i wouldn't say that um we had to um make a uh, decision like this is the way you have to think about it whereas mm-hmm. other things that are a little bit more clear we would say that no this is this is wrong but um yeah that's that's the way i would think about it yeah same here the, the church we need to come together talk about this issue um but i i think sean brings up a good point um we always have to guard against those areas of liberty that might be liberty and and really determining what is uh, dogmatic in scripture as it relates to what we are to do, and then those things that are left to the conscience of each believer. Um, and you know, our confession addresses that too with liberty of conscience that no one is to bind the conscience of someone where God has left them free. Um, and so, the I guess that could be an abuse of congregational authority if the church is trying to bind people's consciences where they're not supposed to be doing that. Um, so it, it depends on the situation, but like Sean said, going back to the scriptures, is this biblical, is this consistent with scripture? And then the church can make the proper decisions from there. Good answers. Good answers. Now, would you guys say, you know, we discussed today, it's kind of important or vital to like, you know, just the Christian to know, or is it just a lot of Baptists? Just, you know, all people hold to this that are Christians. What would you say? <laughs> uh, I think it's, it's incredibly important. Um, and of course I would have lost my notes on this. Uh, <laughs> but Paul makes makes the point when he's uh, talking to the Corinthians, uh, they have a situation where they've allowed somebody to remain in their fellowship who's um, who's um, engaged in sexual activity with his father's wife, um, and he's he's chastising for them for the them for having allowed this, and he says, "Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump?" Um, implying that sin doesn't stay contained it spreads right and his ultimate um his ultimate uh, request is that they they remove the person from this fellowship right mm-hmm. uh so it's important as far as the apostle paul's concerned to remove someone who at least on the outward outside appears to be an unregenerate person um depending on how you read second corinthians he may have been brought back into the, the fellowship um but at least at that point he seemed to be unrepentant and thus should be treated as an unregenerate person um, and he needed to be cast out to prevent sin from spreading. Because when you're in the same, when you're in a fellowship with somebody who's in sin and nobody does anything about it, it all of a sudden gives other uh, people in the congregation pause. It's like, well, is that actually a problem? Because nobody's doing anything <laughs> about it. Or it becomes harder to address other people's sins mm-hmm. when it's like, you're, you're trying to tell me that this is wrong, but you let that guy do that. And that's just Uh-oh. as clear as being wrong in the word of God. Um, and that's ultimately how you have a church that falls into sin. And um, as we read of uh, some of the churches in Revelation, uh, Jesus deals harshly with those churches. Um, no church is perfect. I'm not saying that we're going to have a, a perfectly sinless church, but uh, it is something to, to take seriously. And one thing, um, one thing that helps with that is to have a, uh, uh, at least try to practice a regenerate only church membership so that you're not allowing people in overt sin into your fellowship. Definitely. Before you go, Mr. Daniel, um, how does what kind of what Sean said? Do you guys think if you're if the goal is to have a church general membership that we should be practicing church discipline as well? 
Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think Matthew 18 is very clear on that. Um, obviously, you have this tiered approach, right? You go to the brother first. If they don't repent, then you bring witnesses. If they don't repent, then it then Jesus said to take them to the church, right? It's not just going to the elders. And actually, um, I guess you could argue that the elders are the ones who are kind of doing the behind-the-scenes work first before mm-hmm. it's brought to the church, and then the church has to deal with that issue. And even in the case of that man who was uh, in an incestuous relationship, Paul brought this atten- that brought this issue to the church as a whole, right? He didn't just go to the leadership. The church mm-hmm. had to deal with it. They had to remove him, and they had to avoid him. Uh, and Paul also talks about what to do when someone is put out of the church in a disciplined state. They're not to even eat with such a one, right? So the entire church is involved in this kind of uh, rejection process. Um, so yeah, church discipline is involved in that, although it's a little different because of the the tiered approach that the Lord lays out in Matthew 18. But at the end of the day, if the process is to carry itself to its fullness, it would uh, require the entire church to be involved. And that does go to show you uh, the Lord's care for his church and his care for this topic, that we do try to keep the church pure in that regard, uh, because you have multiple passages of scripture that talk about what you are to do, what the process is, and, and all that. Um, so the Lord clearly cares about this topic. Definitely. Now for just our Christian, as it kind of hits our conscience, would you, I guess like the Matthew 18 approach, is there like a time frame of like when we can take it to the church? Let's say, you know, you have a brother or sister, there's a fence, you go talk to this brother in private, they don't kind of repent it, you bring another brother in. Like how do people deal with the time frame of when to do these things before the church as it comes like a church discipline, officially? Mm-hmm. So if it's sin, I would think that there would be a sense of immediacy because you don't want a brother to be continuing in sin for very long. But at the same time, I don't want to be super legalistic and like, oh, well, you know, you have two hours to to really address this or you're, you're sinning because things do like you are living your life, you know, like maybe it's just not opportune to speak to somebody at a time. So you wait a week before addressing them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know that there's a, um, a fixed amount of time. Obviously you can leave it to too long and then you're addressing somebody for something they don't even really remember what happened or something. Uh, but I would, I would think that if you're a believer and you're concerned for your brother, that seems to be sinning, that you would have a, a somewhat of a sense of urgency about bringing this up and getting this, uh, getting this done. And if they refuse to listen, that you would want to, uh, go through that process um as quickly as possible to get it addressed at least that's my, that's my thinking on it yeah i think that there that there's no timeline defined by the lord but i think it just depends on the situation um i i think part of it too is you you want to be patient with people um you know you want to have time too to do an investigation we don't want to just take somebody's word that someone's you know if 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 i'm accused of some egregious sin it would be irresponsible for the elders to just come and say, well, repent of that. You know, it's like, well, do you have witnesses? Do you have evidence? Is you, you don't want to bear false witness. So there's a, there's a process, I think, that in other biblical principles that we can bring into that process that might make it go quite a while. And patience, too. We want to be long-suffering as we call people to repent. We don't want to just assume that they're going to repent right away necessarily, there's, a, there's I, I think it's just being patient, long suffering with people and ensuring that are they really 
ingrained in this or are they um, or is this a period of backsliding and you know how is the lord working here so i, I think it really it really just depends uh, church discipline is not something you want to jump into lightly yeah. or quickly it needs to be very well thought out very methodical um the elders certainly have to make sure they're doing this fairly they don't they need to be above reproach too and and whoever's involved in this um so the timeline i think just it just depends on on the situation and the wisdom that they have at the time now a lot of times like us as reformed baptists we've been accused as oh you guys just care about only having believers in the church you guys are able to discern who's a believer who's not a believer but um, I like how you guys kind of define a universal church and a visible church. And we kind of take it, you know, seriously kind of what Jesus said about these things. I like how like church discipline, I think it ties into this act of church regenerate membership. Would you guys say that as well? Or what's your oh, opinion? yeah. Oh, yeah. If somebody is unrepentant, whether or not they end up being a believer or not, we, we, we can't discern that. Um, the point of church membership is to throw them out into the world so that if they are a believer, they might realize their mistake and come back. But regardless, we are to, if we see somebody acting as an unbeliever in an unrepentant state, we're to treat them uh, like an unbeliever and we're to not allow them into the fellowship. So I think those do actually go hand in hand. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, I just want to thank you guys so much for coming on and helping me talk about this the topic. Did you guys have any other final remarks on this topic or anything in general as well to discuss? Um, I'll just bring up the fact that um, even though uh, a lot of this was framed against the backdrop of Presbyterians, you do see the creep into Baptist circles of uh, not being so concerned uh, about uh, a regenerate church membership. So mm -hmm just a, a word of warning even to our Baptist uh, brethren that um, we are we are concerned about um, who is in the local church. You'll get a lot of uh, more pragmatic leaning um, churches uh, that think of church as a way to witness to the world. So you can you can bring in um, unbelievers, which of course you, you should bring in unbelievers, but all of a sudden they're uh, in the uh, in the church as members and they're they're not, um, they're not believers. In fact, there was a phrase I'd heard recently, um, belong before you believe. That's a, a phrase going around um, saying like, okay, you can be in the church and you can be serving, but not necessarily a, a full believer yet. And we would, we would absolutely reject that. The New Testament is clear that um, you're, you're supposed to have uh, people that are walking as Christians, as members of the church, otherwise they'll be put out. Um, and it really goes to what is the purpose of the church? As we read in our confession, one of the purposes of the church is for the worship of God. Um, and obviously, if you're, if you're not actually a believer, you aren't worshiping God as he should be worshipped. Um, not that any of us worship him as he should be worshipped, but you know what I mean. Um, so we need to think about church as not merely evangelism for the lost, and that's the only thing. But this is where we go to worship and honor our Lord. Um, and part of the way we do that is making sure that his congregations are uh, pure to the best of our ability. Definitely. I know before um, you kind of came in the Reformed theology world, especially the Baptist world, uh, my Baptist experience was like many, it's kind of like um, one elder rule. You have like, you mm -hmm. know, pastor, things of that nature. And it's like, you know, after the pastor gets done preaching, you may do an altar call and like you want to join a church, you start the process immediately right there. 
Mm-hmm. But it's kind of like a not in sense of caring about, okay, is this person really a believer or not? Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that every church is like that, but just my experience, and that's kind of what I've seen before I entered the Reformed Baptist world. I can believe it. Yeah, and it, that's the importance of having like a, a vetting of people. You know, the membership process shouldn't just be, you know, you know, like you, you're talking about, Cleo, uh, with the altar call. You come forward, you check the box, you say the prayer, whatever it might be, and then, oh, you're a member of the church. That should never be the case. It, there should be evidence of a, of a profession, but there should be a, a watchful eye. Is this person, it, are they exhibiting evidence of faith? Are they obeying God? Are they wanting to serve in the church? Whatever it might be that provides that evidence in accordance with scripture. Um, so there needs to be there needs to be time to watch this person and see if if there is a real credible profession of faith. Obviously, we're not we can't see the heart. Um, we can only see what we're, we've been given, which is the evidence of the person's profession in life, and that should be the basis of how they're admitted uh, into the church. When you see what happens in some of these bigger churches, like we're seeing now with the the Hillsong Bethel Church, right? All these scandals coming out, Carl Lentz and Brian Houston, their inappropriate behavior, you know, probably that's not a, we all knew it wasn't a church to begin with, a real church, um, and now they're they're double lives are coming out um it seems um and i think it again it just goes back to the importance of having a a, the purest membership that we can and vetting people um who come in and not just accepting them just because they say they're christians but they need to show it they need to to provide that evidence to uh the church so we can make sure we have as pure of a body as we can Mm -hmm. And we do we do want to walk with uh, new believers. We're not expecting perfection, obviously, and, and people within our yep. membership stumble, and we we want to see them restored. So yep. hopefully, we're we're not coming off as legalistic here and talking about wanting a, a pure uh, pure church, but um, taking that into account that uh, even younger believers will not necessarily be as mature, or whatever. We do want to carefully consider who who does enter into our fellowship and um not be so unconcerned that we are letting wolves in with the sheep definitely definitely that's why i like the congregation method it's so important because a lot of times in the the pastor rule church his sin getting called out often or you have members that want to call that center kind of scared because mm-hmm. they're not approach it but with the congregation method i think everybody's held accountable like you mentioned like when um when someone got sent out of the church they came to the church and the church confirmed this calling rather than like the pastor and it mm-hmm. kind of shows you kind of units and now, um, my last question to you guys, you know, if somebody listening right now, you know, they may like Reformed theology, but they're not a believer. What's the gospel, man? How would you guys explain that to them? Oh, wow. All right. Um, <laughs> always, no, it's, it, this is the perfect way to end because we can talk about the highest theology possible. But if the people listening aren't even saved, what good have we done for them? Uh, so the gospel in a nutshell, well, before we get to the gospel, we have to walk through the bad news. Gospel means good news, but to appreciate why the gospel is good, we have to go uh, to the bad news. And the bad news is that we are all sinners and God is holy and God does, cannot tolerate sin. He cannot wink at it. He cannot um, sweep it under the rug. Um, he will uh, judge for sins and give the appropriate punishment. And the appropriate punishment for sin against an infinite God is an infinite punishment, um, and that is eternity in hell. Uh, But God, being merciful, being kind, um, sent his son into the world uh, to be an atonement for our sins. 
Uh, that is, he, um, he bore the penalty for our sins and he lived a righteous life. And by faith and faith alone, we are united to him and we, uh, we have our sins atoned for and we have his righteousness credited to our account so that when we stand before God, it is as if we had uh, not sinned at all. So uh, in order to be saved, you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's not merely believing that he exists because many people believe that he exists. But to believe in him is to trust in, to, in him and have faith in him and, um, and to repent of your sins. Not that you will ever walk perfectly before him in this life, but that you recognize, no, my sin was evil and Jesus has the right as God to tell me what to do. Um, so uh, that, that is the gospel in a nutshell. I don't know if you wanted to add anything there, Dan. No, that's pretty much it. Yeah, I mean... If there are those who are listening, you know, who are new to Reformed theology, it's not, I think Reformed types can be, we, we are theologically heavy, and that's good, but um, if you have theology, but you don't have Christ, and you're not saved, it doesn't mean anything uh, at the end of the day. You can have all this head knowledge, um, but if it doesn't sink into your heart, and it transforms you, then uh, it's worthless. So believing in Christ is really the end understanding who god is understanding what the gospel is that's the end of what we're uh, what we should get at when we're talking about reformed theology and our confessions and, and all of these different things surrounding it uh, it's believing in christ by faith alone resting in his work embracing that as our own not just intellectually but really believing it as sean said um, and we will find rest and peace in jesus christ um, and then this theology that we have is glorious and we can see it as consistent and showing us more who God is and helping us to worship him more. Um, and, and that really, sh all that theological knowledge should help us to uh, know God better and to live for him and transform our lives um, so that we can honor him in all that we do. Um, but the gospel is really where it starts, understanding our relationship to God uh, with our sin and embracing the gospel as found in Jesus Christ. Wonderfully said, wonderfully said, man. Thank you guys so much for coming on. It's always a joy to kind of partner with you guys. I love listening to you guys' as, um, uh, podcast, and so it's always a joy to have you guys. Thank you, brother. Thank Thanks you. for having us on. Enjoyed talking today. No problem, man.